Before we go to our potluck, we're going to wrap up our series, Fishing for Men. So over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Clint has been sharing, and we have, I am all turned around. Okay, there we go. We have talked about how we are called to fish for men. That is what God has called us to do. The last words that Jesus said before he was going back to heaven was go and make disciples. So that is our call. And then last week, Pastor Clint laid it out there, like God has put us in a sphere of influence. He has put us in a sphere, in a world of lost and hurting people who need the hope and message of Jesus. And it's up to you to decide if you are going to take those steps to bring them into the kingdom of God so that they can have a hope, they can have a future, they can have a purpose. The call is there, your influence is there, and now tonight we're gonna talk about how are you supposed to use your influence in a world that is constantly trying to influence you? Like, there is influence everywhere. It is a job that makes a million dollars a year, you guys. Like, an influencer is a job these days. I was looking it up, I was curious, I was like, what does like the next generation think of influencers? So I did a little bit of research and found that one study, they, it was a marketing research study, they asked 2,000 people in the Generation Z and 86% of them said if they were given the option and the ability to be an influencer for their career, they would take it. And then there's one quarter uh, Forbes did a study that found one quarter of every Generation Z, per, like so that's one in four Generation Z, that is, that is their aspiration, to be an influencer. But they're not talking, for the vast majority, they're not talking about influencing men, toward, or men and women toward the kingdom of God. They're talking about influencing what to wear, what to, how to do your makeup, how to work out, how to make money, how to invest the money that you've made. The pants that Clint has on right now were an Instagram ad. He could do it, I mean, he could do a mega squat in them, guys. They, <laughs> but, but he was influenced to buy them off of social media. So how are we, how can our influence rise above a culture that is just consistently trying to influence us? Oh, hello. Hi. Hi, everybody. Um, so to, to, to look at that, we're gonna be looking at the story of Daniel. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Daniel. Um, we're gonna get there in just a second. But we're gonna be talking about the story of Daniel because Daniel was living this life. He was living life in a Babylonian culture that was trying to make him Babylonian. They didn't want him to remember what it was to be Jewish. They didn't want him to remember the God of the Jewish people. They wanted him to be a Babylonian, but Daniel didn't. He used his influence and he, he had every king of Babylon's ear for 70 years. And so how did he do that? How did he get that much influence? And it's really important to look at leaders of the past when you're a leader. And you might hear that and be like, excuse me, I'm not a leader. I'm just a mom. I'm just an employee. I'm just a student. Like, I'm not a leader. But we have to get on the same page here that leadership is influence. That's all it is. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. If you are influencing someone, you are leading them. So whether you like it or not, you're a leader. So if we are leaders, we need to look at leaders of the past and see what they did and how they did it well. So we're gonna start in Daniel's story when he's super young. He's somewhere between 14 to 17. And he lived in Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah. And 
this, this has been where the Israelites had been building up after coming into the promised land for 800 years. They had been building and they, like they were in Jerusalem, had a tabernacle. I, I can't think of the word right now. I got distracted. I took my Adderall, but like this is very much like an on off thing. And I think like the off is starting. So you guys are in for a ride. Um, <laughs> Anyways, they had a full, a full world, okay? And in 2 Kings chapter 25, this is what the Babylonians came and they did to the city of Jerusalem. It says, this is what King Nebuchadnezzar did. He burned down the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all the important buildings in the city. Then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. And that was their safety. That's all they had. The walls were what kept them safe and he took that away. Then the captain of the guard took as exiles the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had been declared, who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. So in one siege, the kingdom of Babylon took away everything the Israelites had worked for for 800 years. And just like that, they're back in exile all over again. So this is where Daniel is coming from. This is what he's lived through. He's been taken as an exile into the kingdom of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar was like, I've got an idea. Also, if you've ever tried to spell Nebuchadnezzar without looking it up, don't, don't try. I was like, I have no idea. So I did a lot of copying and pasting. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar had an idea to take the young men that had been coming in as exiles and to, to put them into his palace to serve and essentially turn them into Babylonians. That was his goal. He wanted to make them so much like everybody else in Babylon that they forgot everything of the life that they had left behind in Jerusalem. And so in Daniel chapter one, it's uh, King Nebuchadnezzar specifically says what he's looking for. He says, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. <laughs> Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned to them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and they would enter the royal service. So these guys were literally like Babylonian royalty. Like they had the best housing, the best food, the best education, the best entertainment. He was treating them like royalty, but King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't doing that out of the kindness of his heart because he was not a kind man. He was, he was a bad man. There was one, there was a king of Israel that he killed his sons in front of him and then gouged his eyeballs out. So the last thing he would remember was his sons being killed in front of him. Like King Nebuchadnezzar was not a kind man at all. He was not doing this to make them feel good. He was doing this so that they relied on him for everything, so they would rely on God for nothing. He knew if he could stop these young men from being men of God, that he would, he would cancel that entire culture from the start because they wouldn't go back and lead their families to be men of God. So he started that by changing their names. He changed all of their names from their names, from their Jewish names that glorified God to Babylonian names that glorified Babylonian gods. And we get four specific examples that I want to share with you guys. One of them is Daniel. And then if you're a fan of Veggie Tales, I think you're going to recognize the other ones. Uh, the first one, his name, Daniel's name meant God is my judge, like capital G, God, our God, the God of Israel. He cha it was changed up, Belt Tezeshar, Belt 
<sighs> Belteshazzar. I've said that 75 times this week, and I still didn't get it right. Belteshazzar, which means meaning it was Bel's prince. The name Hananiah meant beloved by the Lord. That was changed to Shadrach, meaning illuminated by sun God. The name Mishael, which meant who is as God, was changed to Meshach, which meant who is like Venus. And Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nego. So we've got Belteshashar and Rakshak and Benny. So that's what our kids love, Rakshak and Benny. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story is for another time, but all of these guys were buddies. Like whenever I'm talking talking about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were with him, and they, were, they set themselves apart. But I wanted you to see the, the names, what he was doing. He was stripping them of who God had called them to be and who he had named them, and named them something completely different. And then Daniel and his friends decided to not exactly do what the king wanted them to do. In verse eight, it says, Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. So Daniel accepted the new name. He was like, whatever, call me whatever you want. I don't care. I know who I am. And he accepted the education. He was like, I know what I believe. Bring it at me. I'll memorize it. It's fine. Whatever. It's not going to change. But he drew the line at the food. And I thought that was really interesting because I was like, why was he okay with everything else but the food? He was like, no, thank you. And some researchers think that it's because the food might not have been kosher. Like God had laid out very clearly what the people of Israel were to eat and not eat and steak and wine might not have been on it. Um, and a lot of people think that it was because those foods had probably been offered to false idols. Like that was part of the Babylonian culture to offer meat and wine to their idols and then serve it to people. And so he might not wanted to have partaken in that. I think one of the most logical reasons to me is that to share, sorry, I'm trying to get my hair out of that, to share a meal with somebody is to reach a new level of relationship. You're probably not going to sit across a dinner table with somebody that you don't like, that you don't, that, that wants bad for you. So he didn't want to have that relationship with the king. He didn't want to accept that. And so he said, I would rather not do that. He asked the attendant if it would be okay if he would just drink water and eat vegetables, him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the attendant was like, I don't know, man, because if you guys look weak and sick, like that's going to come back on me and it's going to be my actual head on the floor. So I'm not really sure. And he said, but listen, just give us 10 days. And so God gave Daniel favor with the attendant and the attendant said, okay, we'll see. Like we'll give you 10 days because nothing too bad can happen in 10 days, right? And so at the end of the 10 days, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel looked healthier and were stronger than every other men that had been eating the king's food. And it says that at the end of the three years, the king talked with them and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. And then in verse 20, it says, whenever the king consulted them in any matter regarding requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. So Daniel had the ear of the Babylonian king for 70 years. Many kings came and went, and he had the ear of the king. He had influence. So what did Daniel do that set himself apart? Like, what was it about Daniel that gave him that much influence? Because I, I want to know, because I want that kind of influence, right? So we're going to go look a little ahead in the story. We're in Daniel chapter 6 now. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar is gone. There's a new king, King Darius. And Darius decides that he wants to split up 
Babylon into 120 different little provinces. And he doesn't want to be responsible for all of it. So he's going to set people to be responsible for it. And then like 120 people is still a lot. Like, so he's going to pick three men to be over these 120 leaders. And of course, Daniel is one of them. And so Darius is looking at these three men that he's about to set in, on, in like top of the whole Babylon empire. And he, it says, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So I want you to look closely at that verse. It doesn't say that Daniel was so distinguishing, right? He, he distinguished, that's a verb. He distinguished himself with his exceptional quality. Some, some translations say excellent spirit. I love that. So that's what Daniel did. Daniel set himself apart by his excellent spirit. And that's what God has called us to do is set ourselves apart with our excellent spirit. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. I'm going to give you four different ways that you can distinguish yourself. Because whenever we are so different from the world around us, we're going to gain favor with people. People want to know what is different about people who are different. You're going to gain respect. You're going to gain trust. You're going to gain opportunities. But all of those gains mean nothing if we're not using them to further the kingdom of God. So we're gonna look at four practical ways you can distinguish yourself so that you can use your influence to fish for men. The first things first, the first way is to love God because any influence we have over people is going to have to come out of an overflow of our love for God because people are gonna be able to tell that something is different about you and they might not be able to like put their finger on it if they don't have that kind of language but they're going to be able to tell because time with God changes us. There's a story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter four, and two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, Jesus has died, resurrected, and gone back to heaven. Peter and John are in the synagogue, and they are teaching of Jesus' resurrection. And the same leaders who were like, uh-uh, Jesus, you're not doing this, and they sent us Jesus to death, hear them talking about it, and they're like, God, we're back at this. And so they, they um, arrest them and they throw them in jail overnight. And the next day they're brought in front of these religious leaders, the same, some of the same people Jesus himself had been brought in front of. And these leaders are going, if we can end them, we might be able to end this move once and for all. Because at that point, Christianity was just a movement. Like they thought that they could just end it and everything would go back to the way it was. And so they looked at them and they said, what, who has given you this authority? By what name are you preaching and healing people? And in that moment, Peter was filled with the spirit and he gave a clear and compelling gospel message. And Acts 4, 13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want you to know the Greek word for ordinary right there is actually idiotes. Do you know what word we get from that? idiot. We get idiot from that. So Peter and John were religious idiots. They didn't know what they were talking about, but they had spent time with Jesus and they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And these religious leaders saw that. It made a difference the time that they spent with Jesus. It was nothing about their natural abilities that set them apart. So how can we love God in a way that overflows? 
First, we develop our closeness with God. I just mean whatever your relationship with God is today, desire to get one step closer, whatever that is. And you have to spend time. Any sort of relationship is going to need time. If I were to look at Clint and be like, hey, and this is the only conversations we have. This is, this is it, this is our marriage. Hey, I need you to do the dishes, do the laundry, mow the lawn, and take the kids to school, okay? Thank you, bye. And that's it, that's my only communication with him. Is that gonna be much of a relationship? No, it's not. We have to have an open dialogue. I have to talk to him about more things than just what I want from him, right? And the same is true for God. We have to have prayers and time with God that are beyond just a list of things that we need from him. Of course God wants to know our needs. He's a good father that delights in giving good gifts to his children, but there has to be a back and forth relationship. So if you don't know how to do that and you're like, I have never even thought about that, I highly recommend the Pray First app. It's Pray First, and there are guided prayers on there that you can go, and it'll help you go through adoration, like praising God, supplication, confession, all of these things that is going to make a difference in your closeness with God. Second, you can develop your character. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring things up in your life that don't shine the love of Jesus. We can use David's prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of life everlasting. Because if we're not actively developing our character, we're gonna miss out on opportunities to share the love of Jesus. And lastly, a last way that we can love God is to develop your calling. What gifts has God put inside of you that he wants to use for the kingdom? Maybe you have the gift of hospitality and you naturally desire to make people feel welcomed, to make them feel comfortable and loved. Come help us out at Oasis. Come help us set up and get some ideas of like, what can we add? What, are, what have we not thought of? We, without the, that gift of hospitality, what have we not thought of that would make people feel more welcome? Or maybe you have a gift of teaching. You might not be quite ready to like get up here and do this, but I'm telling you, Go teach an Oasis kids. And I'm not, I, I'm, not just saying, I'm not just saying that because we need kid volunteers. Like, of course, we always need more volunteers and kids, but I'm saying that is a place that you can teach the word of God to a captive, excited audience that is gonna be very honest with you about what they think. They are going to tell you straight up how you did, so you're gonna be able to get better real quick. Um, you know, maybe you have the gift of administration. We don't, we don't have the gift of administration. You can come help us keep Oasis's ducks in a row so that we can be more effective for the gospel. So whatever your gifts are, whatever you're called to do, do them, practice them, develop them so that you can love God through them. So we distinguish ourselves by loving God. We also love people. And there's people in this room who are naturally people people and there's people in this room who aren't, and that's okay. There are some people who would walk in here and be like, oh man, these chairs are so crooked, and you would get to, to fixing them and straighten them, and you wouldn't notice a person crying in the corner. <laughs> like, you just wouldn't even notice it because you're a task person, and that's okay. There's no shame. I'm grateful for task people because I would live in a life of chaos if, if you guys didn't exist. So thank you, but it's important to love People. It just means you have to put in a little extra effort to this step. And in Matthew 20, God, Jesus gives us an example of how to love people. Jesus called his disciples together and he said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised their authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So we love people in a culture where everything is screaming at you, me, 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 me first, me first, me first. We get to be servants. You love people by being a servant. And we don't do it so that we look good or that we get something we get that warm, fuzzy feeling. No, we do it because we love God and we love people because God loves people. And you don't have to overthink it. Hold the door open for somebody. Give them an extra smile. Give up your seat in a crowded room. Maybe like offer, if you have friends that are like, their family lives far away, offer to watch their kids so they're not paying a bajillion dollars for babysitters. Babysitters are so expensive. That is the biggest servant thing you could do. And I'm not saying us, we got great family in the area, but there's a lot of families even in this church that don't have families near that you guys could offer to watch their kids and serve them in that way. So we're servants. Ask God to open up your eyes for ways to serve because I promise you they're all around you. It's just up to you to be able to see them. Another way that we love people is to be a team player. We decide that it's we over me. It's not about me. If, if the team I'm on is winning, I'm winning. I don't have to get the glory. I don't have to get the praise. We're winning. We're team players. We strive for unity because where there's unity, God is going to bless it. And lastly, we love people by being real. I could talk about this for four hours and I won't because I'm really excited about barbecue, but being real is an amazing way of loving people because at our core, does everybody agree that you want to be known, loved, and accepted for who you are, not who you portray yourself? You want people to know you. When you are yourself, at the risk of people not really understanding you, maybe not accepting you, maybe not loving you, when you risk that, it gives other people the opportunity to do the same thing. Right. It gives other people the comfort of going like, well, they're real with me, so that means I can be real with them. Like, and I know that it doesn't come naturally to everybody, but it's a gift to people whenever you can lay down your pride, lay down your persona, lay down what you want people to think you are and just be real. So that's how we love people. Uh, so we distinguish ourselves by loving God, and loving people. A third way we can distinguish ourselves is pursuing excellence. We pursue excellence. That is a way to distinguish ourselves. And so here at Oasis, we say that excellence is the best we can do with what we've got. Our excellence is going to look different from a mega church. It just is. But it's going to be excellent for what we can do. And the same is true for your life. We want you to pursue excellence. And it's okay if your excellence looks different than the person next to you. And I want to be clear that I'm saying to pursue excellence and not chase perfection. We don't chase perfection. We can't do that because we're never going to be perfect. But let me give you some examples of what pursuing excellence looks like. It looks like doing things well. Just do things well. Do things to the best of your ability. Mark 7:37. people say this about Jesus. They say people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. Because in a culture that values quantity, like how much you can do over quality a lot of times, doing less things well is going to distinguish you. It's going to make you stand apart. So like if you're having lunch with a friend, even just having lunch with a friend, do it well. Do it well, put your phone away, talk about them encourage them. If you're at a team sport, do it well. Pay attention to the coach. Encourage your friends. Try your best. You do things well. Next, you do things before you're asked. One of the greater, greatest leadership things you can have is initiative. I remember Clint's, one of his first bosses, taught us the phrase, a need seen is an assignment given. 
That was that if you saw something that needed to be done, you did it. You didn't wait to be asked. So don't wait for somebody to ask you to help them move. We all know moving stinks. Nobody likes moving. Just ask to help. You know a friend's moving. Say, hey, I can show up and I can help you pack up some boxes. I can move some boxes, whatever. If you have a friend that's had a baby, don't ask them what they need. They don't know what they need. They need sleep. That's what they need. But all you have to do is say, hey, I'm going to bring you dinner. What's better, Monday or Tuesday? Like, just offer the help. Do things before you're asked. Thirdly, do more than is expected. Go the extra mile, do the extra touch, give the extra text, give the extra hug. Like whatever you feel like the Holy Spirit is telling you, do more than is expected. Because these qualities of pursuing excellence are going to set you apart from a world that is very for the status quo. Like the world is all about the status quo, blending in, doing just enough to get by. So when we pursue excellence, it's going to distinguish, we're going to be distinguished. So we pursue it or we distinguish ourselves by loving God, loving people, pursuing excellence. And lastly, we distinguish ourselves by choosing joy. We as a people choose joy. And I think that this quality might get you further than any of the others because it's so counter-cultural. Because our news feeds, our, our social media feeds, most of our conversations are so negative. They are filled with conflict. They're filled with drama. They're filled with he said, she said, can you believe that? All of these things. And so when we are people that choose joy, you're going to stand out. You're going to be distinguished. And it doesn't mean that you don't experience negative emotions. It doesn't mean that you're always happy. Because if I've learned anything, happiness and joy are two very different things because happiness is dependent on our circumstances. Happiness is dependent on how we feel. But joy is beyond that. Joy is a state of our heart. Joy says, I know that God is for me, God is working, and no matter what, I'm going to get through this. Paul says it in this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, in everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored, even though we're well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. My gosh, I'm listening to this. I'm like, what? Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, yet we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. So what does choosing joy look like practically? It looks like being enjoyable. Don't be known as a wet blanket. Be fun to be around. It looks like being positive. There's enough in the world that's negative. People don't need to hear it. Keep negativity off of your lips. Speak life. Your words have the power of life and death. That is scripture, that's in Proverbs. Your words have the power of life and death. So choose life, choose to speak life to people and be loyal to people, be loyal to people. Do what you say you're gonna do. Don't drop people when life gets hard. Don't say you're gonna do something and not do it. Don't only be around when it's convenient for you. Be loyal to people, choose that joy. So in a world that's trying so hard to influence us away from everything of God, That's how we distinguish ourselves. We love God, we love people, we pursue excellence, and we choose joy. 
But just because those steps are like easy and bite-sized, it doesn't mean that it's easy because Satan does not want us to distinguish ourselves. Because when we distinguish ourselves and we're set apart, people are gonna notice it and they're going to ask you. They're gonna wanna know and you're going to have an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. And that is Satan's worst nightmare. He doesn't want that. And you know what Satan does? He does the same thing that King Nebuchadnezzar tried to do to the boys of Israel. King Nebuchadnezzar, he gave them new names. He fed them foods of Babylon and he gave them education of Babylon. That's exactly what Satan does. He, he tries to rename us first. Pastor Clint talked last week about the names that God has given us. We are whole, we are chosen, we are beloved, we are healed, we are overcomers. All of these things, that's who we are in Christ. We can be filled with joy, we are anointed. All of these things are who we are in Christ, but Satan wants us to take on the names that the world wants us to have. The world wants us to be messed up. The world wants to call us broken. They want us to call ourselves angry depressed, anxious, washed up, not enough, overwhelmed. Those are the words that Satan wants us to call ourselves. He wants us to take on those names because when we take on those names, we take off the identity that we have in Christ. And that's where we get our power. That's where we get our purpose is through Christ. And when he can rename us, we start losing that. He wants us to rename us. Then once he's broken that down, he starts feeding us little itty bitty bites of the world. Little, little morsels of world's food. And we start thinking, man, gosh, my husband, he just doesn't like treat me the way that he should treat me anymore. But that guy at the office is real cute. Maybe a lunch with him wouldn't be such a big deal anyways. Or man, they cheated on a test and nobody noticed and they got an A. Why, why haven't I thought of that? Why am I staying up all night trying to study when I could just cheat and make good grades? Or the, man, I slept really great the other night. Like, I know I had too much to drink, but I, for the first time in forever, I didn't stay up with anxiety. I think I still have some wine left in the fridge. Maybe I should go get more and try that again tonight. So we start taking these little bites of food that we don't realize they're rotten until we've had too many. It takes too many bites of these food for us to realize that it's rotten. So we start taking the world's food and then once we're renamed and we've started eating what the world wants us to have, Satan educates us in the ways of the world. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's a lot of opinions out in the world on God and on truth and on religion and on the Bible. There's all of these and Satan loves it. He loves that there's so many things and so many thoughts because the more confused the world is, the more uh, they don't know what they believe, the better off Satan is. So he tries to convince us like, well, God isn't really good if these bad things are happening. Or we know ourselves best. Like we don't need God to tell us what to do because we already know what's best. And we don't actually need to go to church to be connected because we can pray at home and like there's pastors I can watch on YouTube and that's fine. Or like everybody lives their own truth. It's all relative or we can't base our lives on a book that's thousands of years old, that's dumb. You know, like we start believing these things of the world. And I just want to, t I couldn't end this message without telling you guys, like, if you try to distinguish yourself, if you start trying to set yourself apart for the glory of God, Satan will attack you. 
It's not a matter of if, but when, because he is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. So you need to be like Daniel. You need to know your name. You need to know who God has called you to be so that you don't take on these new names. You need to know what the bread of life tastes like so that you're not trying to eat the world's food. You take one sniff and you go, oh, that's not good. This is what fills my soul. You need to know what the Bible says so that when you start hearing the lies of the world, you know what the truth is. Everything that Daniel did distinguished himself and gave him favor with the Babylonian kings. And that's what we have to do to gain favor with the world around us. So I want you guys to close your eyes, bow your heads. There might be people in the room that you just live. You live in this, the trap that Satan wants to get us in because you've never even had a relationship with Jesus. You've just accepted the names of broken and angry and hopeless. And you, you just live with the world's food and not really like knowing any different. Or you just believe what the world believes because you've never known any different but God has done all of the work to change all of that. You can, you can change that today because Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again so that we can have eternal life with him and hope and purpose here now. He's done the work. We can take on the names of God. We can feast from the bread of life. It's just up to us whether we want to choose that or not. And so if that's something that you want to, you want to start a relationship with Jesus today, it's a, it's a simple prayer. The prayer is not magical. It's not magic words. It's just something that's going on in your heart. So if that's something that you want to do, you can say something like, God, I've been living in these lies for too long, and I'm ready to accept the forgiveness and the life that you offer me. I believe that you died on the cross for my brokenness and I accept your gift of salvation because you lived and you died and you rose again so that I could live with you forever. And I give you my life and the best way I know how, I don't know how to do it, but I'm gonna live for you. I'm going to be a fisher of men in the name of Jesus, amen. And that's something that you've done, we wanna know. And so for other of you guys in the room, you guys can bow your heads. I'm sorry, I just want you to be with Jesus for another minute because I feel like there might be something happening. Um, maybe you have a relationship with Jesus, but some of the ways that we've talked about distinguishing yourself, you haven't been doing. Maybe you have been um, going with the flow, just staying in the middle, staying in the middle of the pack. You don't wanna rise above, you don't want that attention, you don't want that pressure, you don't wanna look like a weird Jesus person, but that is what God has called us to do. So maybe you're feeling in this moment that there's something that God wants you to shift. There's a challenge that God is giving you to live in a different way. So I wanna give you an opportunity for a second to just talk with God, listen to the Holy Spirit and look in the things in your life that aren't distinguishing you, but they're making you kind of blend in with the crowd. Maybe you're quick, you're quick to have negative words come out of your mouth. Or maybe, maybe you're like me and you realize that you are actually a very selfish person by, in your flesh and you haven't worked to fight that with the Holy Spirit. Maybe choosing joy is something that's really hard for you. Maybe you get uh, stuck in the negative cycle and you're just constantly 
going over everything wrong with everything, every person, every situation. Whatever it is, I want you to ask God for something specific that you can adjust this week. Just one thing, one of these four things. Do 1% better this week. Take one step closer to distinguishing yourself. And as we're in this quiet moment, I want you to ask God for somebody specific that you can talk to this week that he wants you to reach. And as he's bringing this person to your mind, ask him for a clear and obvious and like not awkward opportunity to invite them to Easter. And I wanna be clear that we are not telling you to invite people to Easter so that we have some like crazy attendance. That I don't care about that. I don't care. What I care about is the fact that 66% of people say that if somebody invited them to an Easter service, they would go. If that 66% of people come in and they're in the presence of God, God can change their life and eternity just like that. And that's what I care about. That's why we want you to invite people. We want you guys to use your influence to be fishers of men. God, thank you so much for our influence that you have put us in, the worlds that you have put us in so uniquely, so specifically, so purposefully. God, I pray that we do distinguish ourselves. Give us insight on which one just one we can do better this week, God. We are simple people, God. I pray for one that we can do better this week. Love you, love people, pursue excellence or choose joy. God, I pray that, that doing these things does distinguish us, not for our glory, but only for yours. God, you are so worthy of all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. We thank you, thank you, thank you for the ability to come here and gather together and to read out of your word, to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. God, I pray that you continue to speak to us as we go and we, we fellowship together out in the fellowship hall. God, we're so grateful for tonight. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.